Hi guys, this is Anna Lakin with Enlightened Transitions, presented by Dillman Law Group. And with me today, I have Lisa Dillman and Brian Moore. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Uh, thanks, thanks for, for having, having us. us. And today we're going to talk about this interview that you guys did with Chet Wright. He's the only surviving World War II Brigadier General who lives right here in Avon, Indiana. And I'm so excited to hear about this interview. Well, Anna, it was, um, it was I don't know, really cool. When we were there, I just remember uh, we went to his um, apartment at the assisted living um, community. And I just remember like pinching myself and looking over at Brian mm-hmm. saying, I can't believe he's uh, giving us so much of his story. Oh yeah, and he and he he would elaborate and talk and talk and talk about his experiences, and um, I was fortunate enough just to sit there and record and to listen to the interview. It was it was really really fun. And you know, we I think we interviewed him when he was maybe ninety nine, not quite a hundred. He turns mm-hmm. hundred and two this year. I know it's right? unbelievable. And um, he's moving around just like you would have thought he was mm-hmm. when he was ninety nine. Right. I can only assume because right. he's the general, right? You know. <laughs> but what I what I struck me when we were talking with him was um, his recall was so precise for things that happened Mm -hmm. back in the 40s you know so um, it was just special you knew it was special as you were sitting there because you were getting information about um, mundane details all the way to like war strategy you know it was really cool Mm -hmm. yeah um, so in Avon, they recently built a, a statue of Chet, mm-hmm. and he's uh, short when you see him now. And I wondered, like, has he always been this short? <laughs> and, and I'm tall, so right, right. everybody's short. <laughs> but um, I was at the statue, and he always has been <laughs> kind of short, and they always write articles on him. So I'm excited to jump right in here. So why don't you kind of tell us some of the background that Chet shared with you um, about his life pre World War II. Sure. I, I think one of the most charming stories that he was telling us was um, how he met his wife, and, or well, how he met his sweetheart, and then mm-hmm. how they got married. <laughs> and it was just sweet. It was just the American romance story. I, I, I loved it. And then, um, then, unbeknownst to him, he just began to show his character um, by talking about how he went down and enlisted, and then he thought he was just he thought it was just for a one year tour, and then all of a sudden Pearl Harbor happened, and five years later he was still uh, he was still out in the in the South Pacific. And so he was not um, he was not drafted. He went and enlisted himself. I think that alone is pretty incredible for that time. Right. Well, and it was not even like a question uh, or, oh, crud, we're mm-hmm. at war now. It was, it was an honor. I, yeah. I believe that's what he made it sound. Yeah. And an opportunity to um, to just fulfill an obligation. Mm-hmm. So why don't we play that clip where Chet talks about how he um, enlisted and what for what he thought was one and it turned to five. And so I read in the paper for the 38th Infantry Division of the National Guard were going, was called into active service for one year. Mm-hmm. So I said, hey, there's, I don't know anybody there, but at least we'll be from the same area. So I went down to the National Guard, walked in as a man in uniform, and so I said, who do I talk to and enlist? Poof, I was gone. Yep. And uh, we went into active duty 17th of January, 1941. And you thought you'd get your one year out of the way. That's right. But what happened? So. We get our one year, and in January of 42, I would have come home. Mm-hmm. But we know what happened in December of 1941, That's right. the attack on Pearl Harbor. That's right. I got home five years later. 
one of the things that struck me as we were talking about it, I, I get, I'm a historical novel and historical film guru, buff, not guru. I don't know enough, but I love it. <laughs> and what I love about um, digging into history is are those little mundane details. So I asked him how much it paid. And he's, he, I, if I recall correctly from the interview, he said it paid like $21. It paid great is what he said. <laughs> and then, so I was excited. And, and then he told me it was $21. And the, the way I relate to history like that is, gosh, when he drives through at McDonald's and buys a couple meals, he would be plunking out essentially what he got paid for the entire month for risking his life. Mm -hmm. That to me, um, I just wonder how that translates uh, to him in a modern economy now when he's writing checks or, or paying his bills. I know. I, I think that's incredible. Like 21, he says it paid well, and he means that. That was not an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think that's, that's definitely very interesting. Um, so we can hear Chet kind of talk about that here. It paid pretty good, didn't it? Yes, it did. How much? $21 a month. <laughs> so Lisa, I also went and interviewed Chet um, as a video, and he's talking to my kids in this video. And it's for the veterans breakfast that we do together. And I just wanted him to share with them some stories. And I will never forget how he talked about the food and the scarcity of food and how he would eat, drink anything. Um, did he share anything like that with you guys? He did. He what again? It's those mundane details. The how things were packed in cans or how they were packed in um, uh, zip tins for them to uh, to eat. Uh, but you're right. The the scarcity was uh, really kind of daunting. And he, I think he talked about how they would the, just the need for water, not even clean water. They would kneel in ditches to drink rainwater. Um, and then while they're doing that, while they're kneeling in ditches to, to quench their thirst, they're getting shot at. So it just puts in perspective. I'm so glad your kids heard it because it puts in perspective um, how basic needs were not guaranteed <laughs> during this time of service. And they were always under fire when they least expected it. And this was at the time of the death march. Is that correct? I think so. If I remember the, the interview correctly and what was... What was neat about him is he he reported it as facts. He didn't get um, overly emotional or or upset. He but it was uh, he did have a sense of urgency of making sure that we knew what was happening or what had happened. Yeah, it's uh, you know I didn't know much about that, but uh, Chet was saying that uh, the death march took place during the Japanese occupation of the Philippines. And I didn't. I didn't it, know that I either. That. Well, and I think. The other thing that I loved about this interview was I wasn't as familiar with the uh, Pacific theater and, and the what was happening in the South Pacific because most of the movies that are made or that are popular or at least that that we consume, I consume, are in the European theater. So, you know, so I'm much more familiar with the European theater, how they stormed the beaches of Normandy and, and just what happened over there and the history over in Europe. But here Chet in his own living room is bringing to life what was happening on the other side of the world. And, and it really inspired me to study that a little bit more, watch more films about that area. And um, just to share quickly, he... Uh, the way he described the heat 
and the bugs. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it was it was amazing <laughs> that he could recall that kind of detail mm-hmm. and really make us feel it when we were just sitting there having a conversation. Right. So we'll uh, play that clip now, but I also want to kind of couple it with this clip where um, he talks about how um, getting into the Philippines and he was calling um, the Japanese impenetrable. And uh, he, he talks very vividly about how they were dug into the mountains. Like you couldn't see or hear anything. And I just thought that was really interesting. Um, he talked about this with my kids and used an example of like, look outside right now. And if you see a bird moving in the grass, you see, I can see that bird moving. Yeah. Okay. Well, we couldn't even see that. There was nothing there. Somehow they had camouflaged themselves so much that you couldn't see any movement. Well, if I Mm. remember, they had they had a head start. Didn't they have like three years to build all of the garrisons and they were dug in and and Chet basically said or General Wright basically said uh, we just had to attack it. We they were so dug in. We had no choice, but we had to start fleshing them out. Um, And so I, I can only imagine the terror of knowing somebody is that close but not being able to see the attack coming um and and again it just makes it all the more remarkable that that he was able to share that with us Mm -hmm. the the death march Mm -hmm. well this was when the japanese had taken over the philippines Mm -hmm. and of course they got MacArthur finally had to surrender and there was a total of about seventy thousand people Army, Navy, Marine Corps, uh, civilians, a whole bunch of Philippines, Filipinos. Mm-hmm. And they were on a forced march of 65 miles to get to a POW. Mm-hmm. And that 65 mile march, the Japanese killed over 10,000 mm-hmm. of the marchers. And uh, they would do things like they, they had no food, no water, no, no sanitary facilities. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guy would see a, a ditch with a water in it, and he'd stoop down to drink the water and well, they'd kill him. Mm-hmm. And if was, one guy went down to do something or fell, and another one tried to help them, they killed both of them. Mm-hmm. So when we got to the Philippines, uh, we went to Lady first, and a town was called Hackloven, and then we went from there to Luzon. And there is where we got into the, the hand-to-hand fighting. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had, well, we when they first got to the Bataan Peninsula, they had been organized well enough for over three years to build their defenses. The Japanese. Uh, the Japanese. Mm-hmm. And they were impenetrable. It was like a, like a fortress. They had enough ammunition and enough food to last for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we had to attack it, mm-hmm. and uh, like I say, the infantry was hand-to-hand. Mm-hmm. And the artillery wasn't very effective because they were in the side of a mountain, mm-hmm. and you'd either go over or short. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they finally found out that flamethrowers worked very well. Did you ever operate those? No, okay. no, I was just strictly artillery. By the way, the artillery the unit I was in was a 105 millimeter towed unit. Mm-hmm. And we had a 35 pound round that was good for about 
50 yards mm -hmm. in being effective. Mm -hmm. And it fired a 35-pound shell. And we could shoot from five to six miles. Mm -hmm. But we were usually about a thousand yards or less from the front lines mm -hmm. because we were in direct support of the infantry. So you took fire yourself? You took fire yourself, yeah? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the artillery in combat fires 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were some problems there, too, but that's another story. <laughs> so what would you say of the battles you were in, was that the, was that the toughest? It was, was the roughest. toughest, yeah. Yeah. It was on the side of a mountain called Zigzag Pass. Mm -hmm. And MacArthur named us the Avengers of Bataan. Mm -hmm. we, we carried that to try to get it on their shoulder pass, but they earned it down. Yeah. We're still known as the Avengers of Bataan. But wow. And could you ever get a single good night's sleep when you were over there? I could sleep between two cannons. Yeah. Today, if you bring a balloon in a puppet, I'd probably hit the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Uh, what kind of food did you have over there? What kind of ration? Uh, you shouldn't mention that. <laughs> when I first got in, we had rations from World War One. Honest, honest. Well, they finally got rid of that and they had another ration called the K ration, and it was, uh, it was, you could eat it. Let's put it that way. It wasn't good, but we had a whole probably a, about a six-month period where we couldn't get any uh, fresh food, and we had to eat rations. And you can eat those so long, and finally they just will not go down. And that's why I lost the weight that I did, mm -hmm. because I, I couldn't I couldn't eat those rations anymore. Mm -hmm. My diet. Have you ever seen a canteen cup? Mm -hmm. They're equal to about two or three cups of coffee, mm -hmm. and I drank that, and I ate fruit salad and beets, mm -hmm. canned fruit salad and canned beets. Mm -hmm. That was my diet for almost six months. Oh my. And I still like root salad, and I still like meat. I was going to say, how can you? My God. So another thing that I thought was interesting was when um, General Wright was talking to us about how we know it was hot over there, hot mm -hmm. and humid, huge bugs, but then they had to train in that environment. And it was just remarkable how it just seemed like it was horrible. But yeah. he, <laughs> but I, know, I, I liked how he said that the training was no joke. Uh, with the amount of hours that they put in and how hot and um, uh, the, the hikes and the jog, jogs that they would take that were um, just the, the training was incredible. Yeah, just for practice. They yeah. would do like a 10 to 15 mile jog in full combat gear. I can't even imagine how how taxing that was. And, and what was so cute was he said, uh, he went into the mil he went into the service at 170 pounds, <laughs> and he came out at 128. And you and I, I, I remember being like, "Oh my gosh, that's awful!" And he, he made a joke. Didn't he say something like, oh, "It's a good weight loss program or something?" That's right. Yeah, that's what he did say. It's a good way to lose weight. Yeah. All right, and we'll listen to that clip here. I want to go back to your training in the jungle. What right. made it? What made it so hard? What made it so rough? Well, number one. You've, you've heard the stories, you know, they, they joke about it. If a guy is doing exercises and he gets exhausted and he falls and the exercise director kicks him in the ribs says, give me 20, mm -hmm. that actually happened. Mm -hmm. There was no joke about that. Mm -hmm. We were in full combat gear all, all the time. Mm -hmm. And you protect your, 
And the artillery didn't carry rifles at that time. We carried 45 pistols. Mm -hmm. But we were armed with rifles for the training. Mm -hmm. And uh, we would march 15 miles just for practice. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were we were training at least 10 or 15 hours a day. Mm -hmm. And it was hot. You were full combat gear, steel helmet, rifle, the whole bit. Mm -hmm. And it was just, just a rough exercise uh, trained for jungle warfare, but it paid off because when we got into the Philippines, for example, well, even New Guinea, the uh, temperature was always over 100. Mm -hmm. and it rained every day, mm -hmm. and uh, we were on rations a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Good example, when I went overseas, my physical, I weighed 170. Mm -hmm. Two years later, I got home. I weighed 128. Oh, my gosh. So... 42 pounds. It's a good way to lose weight. <laughs> no, it's the best way. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so you saw combat for all four years? Oh, no, no. Okay. No, just about, uh, uh, we were actually in combat for over a year and a half. Okay. Brian, your family story of uh, all of your uncles learning about when the war was over because mm -hmm. they all served in the Pacific theater. Right. Tell that story real quick because then, because we told Chet that story and then he shared with us how he found out the war was over. Yeah. So, uh, my, my father is very much younger than my three uncles, his brothers, but they were all, um, uh, in the war together, but they're in different units, different branches. And, um, they never found, they never were able to communicate during the war, um, uh, just sending letters back to grandma. Um, but when, when it was finally over, they were all at a, a partying in San Francisco and they happened to run into each other on the streets and it was a, a party. Like all three of them, uh, just randomly. Yeah, because they, they didn't know, they, they assumed that none of them survived, but they oh, all wow. found each other on the streets and it was unbelievable. And, they, and there's a letter that my grandma has when they all wrote her saying that we're all okay. Isn't that oh, amazing? That's so neat. Yeah, and so I, Chet didn't have the, the good party time in San Francisco mm -hmm. when he found out. I think he was in the jungle. Right. When he found out. <laughs> yeah. So um, tell me what happened. How, where were you, and how did you find out the war was over? We were just outside of Manila, mm -hmm. and uh, somebody came yelling, hey, the war is over, the Japanese are surrendering. And uh, we said, great, that's fine, well, what happened? So they started talking about the nuclear weapon. Mm -hmm. We had never heard of it. Mm -hmm. We didn't know what they were talking about. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know that actually until probably on the way home. So finding out the war was over, I guess, was one thing. But according to General Wright, the Japanese either didn't believe it or didn't get the memo, apparently, <laughs> because uh, they refused to surrender, that's which right. to me, that's a whole nother level of terror. The Japanese, when they surrendered, the Japanese in the Philippines had not heard, had not known that. They didn't know it. And so they wouldn't surrender. And so finally, somehow somebody got word to them and was able to prove to them that Japan had surrendered. Mm -hmm. There was a lieutenant general, Japanese officer, that was in command. And uh, he selected the site for the surrender to us. Mm -hmm. and it was a, a natural bull and uh, mountains on all four sides. Mm -hmm. And he was in the middle 
with a folding table, and he invited the Americans to come down to that area. We didn't know until after it was over that we were completely surrounded by the Japanese, and if anybody made a false move of any kind, they were going to kill all of us. I say us. I wasn't during. I was in the area, but I wasn't down where the surrender took place. What I appreciate also about um, General Wright was he was in a position to kind of um, not only be in the in the you know boots on the ground, but he was also privy to information as to you know strategy and and training and things. And he was very proud when I when we asked you know. What happened? Why did we win the war? What was what was our advantage? And he was really proud, saying that our U.S. military trained better. Um, they knew what to do. They knew what to do under under tough circumstances. And it was that kind of training and commitment to training and excellence that that pulled that out. The reason we won the war, we had great leaders. We had great generals, mm -hmm. but. We had well-trained, non-commissioned officers and all the enlisted men. If the officers, just like in Zigzag Pass, we had cases where all the officers in an infantry unit would be killed, but the sergeant would just take over. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Japanese was not that. When the Japanese officers were killed, the enlisted men didn't know what to do. So when I was listening to the interview with Chet that you all did, um, he told you guys a story that he um, didn't tell my kids. And after listening to it, I see why. Um, I think there's a lot of celebration that Chet discusses at the end of the war, but um, he shared with you a time that I think kind of depicts maybe the fear that had to have gone through those soldiers' minds. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that story that he shared with you all? Yeah, he, he talked, I, I think he was trying to show us the difference between American forces, uh, the philosophy and the culture of, of training in the American forces versus the Japanese forces. He, he told a story about how uh, a Japanese uh, soldier accidentally knocked into a car um, where a Japanese colonel was was riding, if I remember this correctly. And the Japanese colonel got out and asked the driver that hit him to come over, and he shot the driver after he admitted that he hit his car. On and accident, On right? accident, right. Mm -hmm. And it... Um, that story again again here's a 99 100 year old man recalling details like this which tells me this that experience is seared into his memory and it it was such a juxtaposition between the culture of how you get how leaders like he, he is get men to follow you into battle and to lay their life down you can do it out of fear or you can do it out of loyalty and pride and uh, signing on to the mission and that's you know that's why this interview is so rich and that's why you know I'm so glad we're airing it so close to Veterans Day because it really talking to him made me learn so much about mm -hmm. um, how proud I am of our country and our, our armed forces. Yeah we were fortunate to to get this done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A good example of Japanese soldiers there's a tale you may have heard it because it was in the paper but there was a Japanese colonel in a staff car going somewhere, and he had, he had a truck with him, which was behind him. The staff car stopped, 
and uh, the truck barely, just just barely touched the staff car, but it bumped it. The colonel got out, told his driver, go bring the driver to me of that truck. Mm -hmm. The driver came down and he asked, he said, did you, uh, did you hit my car? And the driver said, yes. He said, bang, killed him. Just because, why, is that just a Japanese culture or? Apparently it was. Yeah. And that wasn't, that's not the way we ran our side. Oh, heavens no. Yeah. When you talk about the training, what made our training so great? Just that it went down the ranks and everybody knew what to do? That's right. Okay. That's right. So I know in my interview with Chet and then just some of the like background research that I did on him, I couldn't really understand because I'm not, uh, I don't come from military um, and I'm not in the military myself. I didn't really understand what makes a brigadier general and, and what was the meaning behind all of the uh, awards he had been given. And in an article written um, by Avon, the, the town of Avon, uh, they gave him the keys to the city and that's uh, very special. They only give mm -hmm. it to a couple of people. And um, they talk about how he got the bronze star and um, a service medal and he has all these different medals. And he talks about in your clips kind of how he climbed those ranks and received those awards. And I think that's um, just a testament to his service and his dedication to what he was doing. Right, and it's also interesting to me as you listen to his history, as his various promotions, um, you know, the making of a, of a Brigadier General, that's it's remarkable, that's really, mm -hmm. Um, interesting. He, he served, I think, for 38 years, didn't he? Or something close to yeah. that. I mean, that's a lifetime for him, you know? And, and I believe his children serve as well, served as well. Saw some action in Vietnam. What, when you were over there in combat, what rank were you? I was a senior warrant officer. Okay. That's another story. I went through the entire enlisted ranks in my battalion and became the sergeant major, which is the highest ranking sergeant in the unit. Mm -hmm. And we had about 550 people mm -hmm. in our unit. And so then we were authorized two warrant officers, mm -hmm. one for supply and one for personnel. Mm -hmm. And the old man called me in, my commander, we referred to him as the old man. Mm -hmm. And uh, he called me in and he said, right, I want you to apply for that warrant officer. I said, Colonel, I appreciate it, but uh, I'm more, I have more right now than I thought I ever would have. Mm -hmm. So I said, I'm, I'm happy where I am. He said, well, I want you to think about it. Yes, sir. About two weeks later, he called me in. He said, have you applied for the warrant? I said, no, sir. He said, uh, okay, then put in a requisition for two warrant officers. I said, yes, sir. So <laughs> I went back and talked to the guys that I work with. And they said, hey, you got to go. We don't want somebody new in here. We're getting along fine. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyhow, to make a long story short, I applied. I took the examinations and I appeared before the board and passed. And with junior grade, six months later, I was promoted to chief warrant. I had that during the rest of the war. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So chief, I don't know my ranks very well. Chief okay. warrant is higher than sergeant major? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. T tell me a little bit about All rank. All right, rank. We start out with second lieutenant, mm -hmm. first lieutenant, captain, major, 
Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel, Brigadier General, Major General, Lieutenant General, and General. And we have one more general uh, during World War II. They promoted five, yeah, five Army and five Navy, mm -hmm. five star generals. Okay. Now you're wondering why they did that. Mm -hmm. The reason they did it, they wanted our senior generals to outrank the Allies. Oh. oh. So a psychological advantage yes. there. Yeah. Yeah. Eisenhower was in Europe mm -hmm. and MacArthur was in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. The other two were in Washington. Did you uh, see General MacArthur very much? Who? General MacArthur? Never did. Never did? Never did. Okay. We were close one time, but mm -hmm. we never, never saw him. You mentioned before that uh, one of the reasons we won the war because we had good generals. What made them good? They're training. They're training. One of the stories I loved was when <clears throat> Chet uh, talked about asking his captain if he could get some days leave uh, to go get married. <laughs> and, and his captain said, yeah, I mean, captain granted him the permission with the, with the caution that says, hey, wartime marriages normally don't work out. <laughs> and here he's married uh, for almost 60 years yeah. before his uh, wife passed away in 2001. Mm -hmm. and, and together they had, um, what, three kids, I believe? I believe so, I yeah. So. so we were engaged and we were going to get married in 1941 and July. Mm -hmm. I had a furlough. I was in the army. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was a corporal now, and uh, I was probably making thirty bucks a month. And uh, mm -hmm. so I went home on furlough, and uh, of course we got together. And uh, I said, "Well, I guess we're going to have to call off the wedding until I get through the army." She said, "No, we're not." She said, uh, "We were going to get married in July. We're going to get married in July." Naturally, I said, yes, ma'am, <laughs> and uh, I'm trying to figure this out. Well, finally we decided that we would get married, but we, didn't, we couldn't pick a date. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when I went back, I went in and told the first sergeant, uh, I, I, like I said, I'm a corporal now, mm -hmm. and two-striper, and uh, I told him we were going to get married. He said, you better talk to the captain. I said, okay, so I talked to the captain. He said, right, these wartime marriages don't work. He said, uh, we weren't wartime yet. Right. But he said, uh, you're in the Army, we don't know where we're going. We don't know what we're going to be doing. He said, uh, it just won't work. And I said, well, we, I said, we've dated for five years. I said, I think we might know each other fairly well. And so he said, okay, well, time came. And I was able to get a three-day pass over the 4th of July. And so I wrote my wife. We didn't have phones back then. No cell phones. So anyhow, I wrote, we wrote back and forth. And we decided we could get married on the 4th of July. We did. We got married. The captain called me in. He said, right. He said, I'm going to give you a pass, but you're not going to get married. I said, that's what we plan on doing, Captain. You do, and he said, I'm going to take your stripes away. Yes, sir. So anyhow, we got married, and uh, go back in. First sergeant said, right, the old man wants to see you. Okay. Okay, right, did you get married? Yes, sir. I'll say this. Get your blank out of here. <laughs> and, and, and he didn't, he didn't, 
and it reduced me. He didn't take his no, time. He didn't take my so time. your wedding anniversary is the fourth of July. Fourth of July. War hero gets married on Fourth of <laughs> July. That's great. And how long were you married? Uh, we were married. We missed our sixtieth anniversary by less than three months. Uh, your wife passed away. I'm sorry. Your wife passed away. Yes. And to, in what year did you say? Two thousand one. Two thousand one. April the tenth. And uh, you have you ended up having how many children? I have three boys. They're all married. Yeah. Fifteen. No, I have six grandchildren. Yeah. Fifteen great grandchildren. Three great great. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's a legacy. We asked. Remember, we asked him about the uh, statue, yeah. and he was so humble, as you can imagine. <laughs> he's humble, and the only thing he said was. Well, the sculptor that did me also did Larry Bird. <laughs> so that was like a little ticket to greatness That's for right. him. Was there a photograph that the statue was modeled after? No. No, the, the uh, sculptor came here. He called me one day and he said, hey, can I come and see you? I was sure. And uh, so he, he came over twice and uh, we got together. Well, I got to tell you a quick story about that. Mm-hmm. You both know Larry Bird. Mm-hmm. Okay. The sculptor that did my statue did Larry Bird's statue. Oh. And he was working on both of them at the same time. Now, the funny part of the Larry Bird statue is 15 feet tall. <laughs> the reason it's 15 feet tall is because there's a statue somewhere of Magic Johnson, and these two guys are great buddies and competitors. It's 13 feet tall, and they wanted it okay. taller. Larry's taller. I'm yeah. glad. I'm glad. <laughs> well, I appreciate your guys' time today. And I know that you guys have dedicated a lot of your work to veterans. And if there's a veteran listening who would like to join us at um, our Veterans Breakfast on November 8th on Indianapolis's west side, feel free to get on our website and you can find information on that Veterans Breakfast. It's November 8th at 8.30 in the morning. It's going to be a beautiful service. We're going to play some uh, of the video clips from Chet. But how could a veteran or a veteran's family member reach out to you if they think that maybe they need some help with a claim? Sure. They can uh, call our phone number. It's 317-492-9569. Um, you can also get um, information off of our website, uh, dillmanlawgroup.com. Um, and you can actually contact us through the website as well. All right, guys, I appreciate you listening. You can find this podcast on all of your podcast platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And we will see you next week, and hopefully we'll see you at our Veterans Breakfast. Thank you, Anna. Thanks, Anna.